Welcome to Security Science. Today we're going to be discussing a topic that's pretty hot on everyone's minds considering the COVID-19 pandemic, zero trust. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Security Science. I got on the line with me, Jerry Gamblin. He's head of security for Kenneth Security. And as always, I'm Dan Mellinger. How's it going, Jerry? It's going really, really well. Working from home, getting used to to not seeing my coworkers for months on end. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, traveling all over the place previously, so it must be a pretty jarring change of pace for you, honestly. There are some flight attendants and you know bar staff at airports that miss me at this point. Do you, do you correspond with them often? Say not hi. often, but I'm sure sure if I see them in ever again, they'll they'll say that they missed me. Oh, you should get them some gift cards or something next time you roll through. There you go. <laughs> um, so, you know, today's topic, I know you have some very strong opinions about, but we want to discuss zero trust. So um, I'll kick things off with just a quick definition as, you know, the Luddite on the line, but zero trust in security, it means that no one's trusted by default. So uh, security, typically we've had this kind of castle moat mentality where there's a perimeter and, you know, you... You don't let people in or you authenticate before they can get in and access all the stuff on the internal networks. And zero trust is like no one has access to anything unless we grant it. Is that kind of right? To kind of since the castle has been around, the way I like to explain it to people is we've, we've been in the castle mode forever. Zero trust is night mode, right? Like every person is their own knight. And we put on the armor around them and say, go do what you got to do anywhere you have to do it. And we'll protect you on, you know, as you're out in the field, the same way we protect you when you're in the castle behind that moat. So that's a good way to kind of keep that analogy going is zero trust turns your users into into horse mounted knights. Nice. Staying with the medieval analogies. We'll try to keep that going, see how long it can last on this one. From a historical perspective, this kind of concept seems to have been around for a while. I mean, looking back at some of the uh, NIST uh, paperwork, so I'll, I'll link, by the way, to these NIST uh, publications that was what first came out in November 2019, re-edited this year. But going through some of the history, it looks to what? DOD had Black Core Strategy, which was a move from perimeter to individual transactions, stuff like that, mid-90s, right? Um, what, John Kinderweg started pushing this with Forrester for under the name Zero Trust, uh, you know, what, 2010? And we're just now seeing some NIST standard architectures published in 2019 and 2020. So uh, why the lag? Because the lag you're seeing is the productization of Zero Trust. Zero trust is a framework. It's a set of rules that you follow. I'm not a fan of companies who are selling zero trust hardware, just just to be blunt, because I've seen it before. Most of them are just repurposed network access control devices that that they've kind of resold or, or, or stuff they already had on the shelf that that they just slap zero trust on. That's not what zero trust is. Zero trust is a layered approach and it varies from organization to organization on how you implement it. So I think why it's so popular now is because it sells boxes. People think that you can go out and buy a zero trust client or a zero trust box. But in reality, it's hard work, right? Like it's about 10 points that you're supposed to follow 
to, to kind of build zero trust. And the biggest company, one of the biggest companies in the world, Google, when they did their Beyond Corp, which is based on this, had a ton of problems and a, and a ton of learning curve, right? Like if you go back and read their early stuff when they went to, to Beyond Corp, they started out with a whole separate network. They weren't that old, but they're like, our legacy stuff just doesn't fit in this model. We basically have to have to start over and build all of these systems based on zero trust mod based on the zero trust model. So to do this correctly, you need to build from scratch essentially, for the most part. For the for the most part, or at least a lot of refocused work to to make sure that you know what you're doing and, and how people are accessing the device. It takes away a lot of safety nets that that people are used to to relying on in security, right? What kind of safety nets? When you move stuff from beyond behind the VPN, then you have to monitor all those endpoints, right? Like a VPN and a firewall, they cover up a lot, a lot of mistakes in software and stuff because, you know, that's the single point. At time and time in my, you know, in my career, I've heard people say, oh, is it behind the firewall? Yeah. Okay, well, then we don't care about it, right? Like it can have... 4 million critical vulnerabilities because it's behind the firewall. But in zero trust, you're exposing that service to the internet most of the time. Interesting. And just so we're clear, VPNs, right? Uh, virtual private networks typically used by companies and increasingly regular people, actually, if uh, YouTube advertisements are to be believed. Um, but they essentially establish a secure connection to some kind of asset internally. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, to make it, you know, to keep up our analogy, when you VPN in, you get teleported back into the castle. You're on the inside of the castle with a VPN connection and all the rules apply and all the protections apply that you set up around the castle. What, you know, what Zero Trust does is it says, no, we're going to allow you to call directly to that service without coming back inside the castle, right? Got it. So how do you set that up? Like you were talking about Google had this kind of challenge when they first started rolling this out, right? Was, hey, we looked at this. We realized we don't even have that much infrastructure because we're a relatively young company at the time. This is going to take a rethink and a restructure on how we build this up to enable all this. So how would you as a you know, a CISO for a company or a CIO for a company look at zero trust and how to implement it? Would you go to re-architect your infrastructure? Would you look at some solutions out there? Like, What's that whole process look like then? I think for most people, a good starting point is getting all of your applications behind a single sign-on provider and making sure they all have multi-factor authentication. That's probably step one for most people to do. And when, when I talk to people about moving there, I'm like, okay, here's what you have to do. How much of your stuff do you sign in through a single sign-on provider? And they're like, oh yeah, most of it. All right. So you've done the easy work. Now go find that last 20%, which is probably your crown jewels. And get that behind there, right? Like, make sure Salesforce or your CRM is behind behind your single sign-on, right? That internal application that people use, right? That you're going to have to write a special wrapper for. Get that behind your SSO. That is really a first good start, is getting everything centralized through a single SSO and a single multi-factor authentication tool. Gotcha. And then what's next? What's after that? 
Uh, next is kind of uh, different. It's it's a user analytic behavior. It's like a called UAB. Um, it's what allows you to determine what is normal use and what is anomalous use for for your applications. So if you're going to let people log in from everywhere and not and not worry about where they're logging in at, you have to have some way to kind of profile it. So you have to start looking, right? Like, hey, Dan logs in in California every week, right? Hey, he's trying to log in to our bank records from New York this morning at 5 a.m. That's not right, right? Like, did you got to have something in your system that's smart enough to say, uh, we're not going to let Dan in at 5 a.m. from a New York IP address when 99% of his authentications are from are from California between this working period. So it's really a bunch of intelligence or user analytics that, that has to be overlaid so that your system is smart enough to make those kind of calls on when to give people access and when to not allow them access on the fly. Gotcha. Well, that makes a ton of sense. And just for the record, I will almost never be up at 5 a.m., especially Eastern time. So No, exactly. Yep. Just to put that out there. So you're saying there's technologies out there today that are smart enough to kind of fingerprint my usage, my behaviors, my actions, and be like, hey, this looks out of band. You know, the technology itself kind of knows me and my habits where I log into from a from a technical perspective and can make corrective and or kind of proactive actions based off of that. It, yeah. And some people don't like it because it will catch it will catch somebody that's not that shouldn't be blocked, you know, one percent of the time has 99 percent success rate. Somebody's going to get caught when they shouldn't. So it, it's hard for people to implement because they want 100 percent success rate. And, and there's no such thing when you're when you're training a model to kind of pick those things up. Right. Like especially if you're like we we're talking about, if you're a VPN user, commercial VPN user, you can sometimes end up in something that'll block you for impossible travel, which is, hey, you just checked your Gmail from a California IP address. And then you turned on your VPN and now you're having an IP address from England, right? And two hours, right? There's no way that you, it's called impossible travel because there's no way you could have traveled from California to England in two hours. So it's going to block you there. All because I wanted to watch uh, some English baking shows on Netflix, right? Exactly. Yep. Interesting. It doesn't seem technically impossible, but it seems pretty difficult today. And it seems like it would have been even more difficult right in the mid 90s when people were kind of proposing this. So um, from a technology perspective, like has zero trust caught up, I guess? I believe so. I believe that the parts of zero trust are there, but there's not a package and there never will be a package that says that like, here, just run this and everything will be zero trust because zero trust is an architecture, which means it's multiple steps, which means that you can look at the architecture diagram and find four or five products that'll fit every step. But you have to pick which product works best for your for your organization to, to make it worthwhile. It seems like a, a decent amount of work to convert more traditional infrastructures to this kind of uh, architecture over time, right? So. Yeah, because you have you have to really, really know your, your infrastructure, especially if you're not a startup or a new business. It, it's hard. If, if you're a 
established corporation or somebody with a lot of code that's internal and you're running a bunch of stuff inside inside your castle or inside your your firewall, it's a lot harder than if you're a startup and your email's hosted in Google, all your CRM stuffs in Salesforce, right? And you're used to being in kind of a hosted world and your infrastructure's in AWS because then it is just kind of hooking some stuff together. Where, where Zero Trust really, really struggles are for large corporations who have a lot of technical hurdles to allow remote work. Which remote work is kind of the theme of technology today, right? Um, if anyone's listening to this podcast in the future, we're currently going through this giant uh, pandemic they call COVID-19. So most businesses have been forced to uh, create remote work policies and or convert a large portion of their workforce to remote work um, where they may not have been before. So uh, a little more pertinent today than it was, you know, four months ago, but uh, thought I'd throw that out there. Um, I'm also curious, Jerry, because based off some of this NIST uh, information I was reading, a lot of the federal agencies have been urged to start to move their systems over to this kind of a strategy, right? Um, I don't, they don't have like a solution or anything in a box, like you were saying. Um, and it said the technology was a limiting factor and they primarily going through what they call choke points internally. Um, it's saying that today it is now possible to start to real time analyze, like you're talking about. What does it look like? Like, how do you go and set, hey, this is financial data. We should protect this in a different way than Dan accessing his email. Um, Because you were talking about that complexity. And it seems like a pretty big challenge to identify, you know, the content itself that's the crown jewels. um, And then also the users that should have access to that. What, What does that process look like? As a security guy who hates documentation, <laughs> I'm going to hate to say this, but it's documentation, right? Yeah. You, you have to understand what's on your network, have a good data flow diagram, understand where those uh, data points are that are important to you and have that signed off by everyone in your organization and understand what data you don't want to leave your network, right? Like most people are, are when they want data, it's always, oh, this data isn't very important, right? Like, ah, you know, this is low level, medium confidentiality, whatever. But if it would leak, it becomes the most important data your company ever had. So it's a it's a scale and you want to have these conversations way before you start this, right? Like before, before you do it. And as a security professional, I don't want to be making these calls, right? Like I don't want to go into a room by myself and try to try to categorize what my data is. That should be done by if it's in the federal government by the director of those departments, by by their office staff, right? Like understanding where that data can go. If it's in your business, like everybody needs to be involved. Zero trust can't be done by by a security team alone or even by a technology team alone. It takes a whole company to decide that. Interesting. Yeah, that's a lot of stakeholders now that I'm kind of thinking through some of the mechanics of what it would take and literally looking at data and sources. Um, it, it just reminded me of that whole adage, you know, don't write an email if you're not comfortable with the world seeing it. Um, kind of applying that, but to an enterprise's entire stack of data, right? Especially when you say, okay, we're now going to give somebody access to this data anywhere in the world. There are, there are two flavors of zero trust. 
There's like zero trust light, which is I'll allow you to access this data anywhere in the world on my corporate laptop that I give you, which you can put some DLP stuff on, do a bunch of management. DLP is data loss prevention. Prevention. So you can kind of monitor what data gets copied there. And then and then there's like zero trust nightmare mode, right? Where you're like, I don't care which device you use, right? You want to whip out your iPad and get on our CRM or you want to whip out your, your iPhone or Chromebook that you have at your house. I don't care who owns it. Just type in, you know, SSO.mycompany.com and, and you have access to the data, right? Like that's a whole nother level because then you don't have that visibility on the endpoint and you really do have to trust your systems to not let the wrong data go and be persistent on a device that you don't want it to be persistent on. Just a whole new layer of complexity on top of several layers of complexity that we've already discussed. Oh, yeah. People like to talk about zero trust in a way like, yeah, we, we run zero trust as long as you're on the company provided computer, right? Yeah. But zero trust like nightmare mode is you can access company data on any device. We don't care who owns it. Like, Are companies today realizing that whole potential of zero trust do you think there's there's like a handful like overall are there a couple you know you brought up google a couple times like are they at peak zero trust whereas most people are at you know you know below light zero trust google is at zero trust probably probably the most right like they built for this you know it's a product for them they really want people to use it so so they're selling a concentrator which is an sso vpn uab all together through their cloud so that they've productized it too um they are definitely way ahead of most people most people are lucky to have all of their SaaS stuff behind a single sign-on provider with two-factor authentication and call that like zero trust super light right like I think if most companies got to that, they would be happy. But everybody I talk to has that cut list of, of SaaS applications that they haven't gotten around to getting behind their single sign-on for, for a myriad of reasons. Interesting. So zero trust demo mode is getting just just your SaaS solutions behind single sign-on, basically. And most people aren't even there yet. Yep. They're, you know... They've made a good run at it, but they're down to the hard stuff and, you know, the hard stuff's always last. So Gotcha. It's a lot of hard work, basically, to get this thing up and running effectively and to realize that dream outside of being incredibly difficult and requiring a lot of hard work. Uh, what are the downsides to some of the more traditional, you know, perimeter-based security? Is Are there any? Is this typically, you know, if you could do it easily? Would it be the most advantageous from a security standpoint? Yeah, I think that if, if you're starting over or if you're looking at it, building a zero trust model is the best because of the visibility to the data that it gives you. Because a lot of zero trust is understanding what's going on and monitoring everything to a way that when we were in a, the castle kind of analogy, we kind of trusted everybody we let in the castle, right? Like. If you were in the castle, we're not logging every call you make to the system, probably. Or if we're logging it, we're definitely not running it through an IDS, IPS, right? Like that's only for, for the bad guys outside of the castle. But when you go to zero trust, you start looking super heavy at all that traffic and it helps you improve your applications and understand what's going on and catch, you know, 
bad internal actors, which sadly there are always a few. Huh. So that's so people could take the concept of zero trust. And if you were to actually build out this kind of an infrastructure, um, it really gives you a ton more levers, a ton more insight into the traffic that's going on. So you could, in theory, make better products if you're, say, creating a cloud based you know, application, something like that. Yeah, the key of zero trust is logging and monitoring, right? Which so I know some companies do it great, but most companies don't don't do that very well on their internal applications, other stuff inside of their network, right? They they're basically they're you know their monitoring is if somebody calls the help desk and says you know this payroll processing system that we're written is down or I'm having issues, right? May be recorded for customer service. Yeah, yeah, got it. If most companies are barely in demo mode, you know, what would you recommend for people if they want to try to embark upon this very challenging endeavor and or say a new startup, new company rolling out a new infrastructure? It goes back to policy, to be quite frank, is that we're not putting anything, we're not putting our customer data in anything that if they don't meet these requirements that allow us to do zero trust, right? Like we're able to get the logs. It's, you know, first one is it's behind SSO and MFA, right? Like if we can't put this product behind our single sign on with multi-factor authentication, I don't care how it's going to change the world. We just can't bring it on as a company. And then like, what can we do with the logs? What can we do with monitoring? You know, do we have a good data understanding of which data is going into the system from where and who should have access to it? It's a ton of policy and a ton of buy-in, right? Because the first time a company has to get serious and tell somebody, no, they can't use a super awesome SaaS that they're really excited about because, you know, single sign-on is on their roadmap, but it's not on there for two more quarters, right? Like, yeah. That's when the rubber meets the road and you have to decide, you know, is this important to us or, or not, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess that whole political slash not giving people the the tools that they may want or, you know, having a hard conversation about do we need this? Is it worth the security risk? You know, we wrote this policy, you know, now we have to stick to it, right? And is that hard to do in a company typically or? Yeah, I mean, we're getting a little bit off of this, but policy is such a such a big part of this. I talked about it in an, in an article a while ago, right? Like, policy should never be written by the security team. They might be drafted by the security team, but if the people who have to enforce them don't have complete buy-in and complete understanding, then then they'll never survive, right? Like an unenforceable policy is, is just auditor food, right? <laughs> auditor food. I like that term. If the rule is like we're not going to put on a SaaS unless it does SSO and that fails the first time, you know, somebody wants it, then it really wasn't a policy, right? Like you need to make people understand both up the chain who's going to have to, you know, your vice president or the CIO or whoever is going to have to tell somebody, no, we're not buying this because it doesn't have this way before because, you know, people in leadership don't like to be surprised, but also the person buying the SaaS should have had that cut list from, from day one so they could give it to to the vendor and said, okay, you know, if you're going to sell us this, you have to be on SSO, you have to be on two-factor authentication, and you have to meet our minimum logging standards, right? You know, you can't redline these out, right? Yeah, these are have-to-haves. Yeah. And if not, like, come back when you have that built. It goes back to doing your homework, documentation, and then making them enforceable. So would that typically, the enforcement come down through 
a CIO, a CISO? Like, where does that rejection, like, how do you give those kind of policies teeth then? To be honest, they normally live in some kind of procurement office in bigger corporations, right? It's part of the checklist that they run through, just like they run through a contract thing. They run through, you have a security checklist in your in your contracts, all right? Do you do SSO? Correct. Do you do this? Correct. You know, and, and if not, sorry, we can't, like, you failed our, our compliance audit. We can't move forward with the purchase. Or if we can, you know, there has to be much more discussions and much more sign-offs from, from way up the chain. But hopefully, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, I've had to deal with some of that stuff myself in the past, right? Um, and not that it's a bad thing. It's totally get it. But yeah, no, it's always come down through typically, you know, a legal contracts review process. Like we need to have X, Y, and Z. You know, did you realize that they don't have, you know, A and B? We need those, you know. As security, I don't want to be the enforcer. I, I want to help everybody come up with the, you know, with the framework, right? With the guardrails. Like, I don't care what you do, but here are some minimum standards. Here's some minimum guardrails that you have to be in. And if you're in there, I, I'm not, I don't care. I'm not going to stop you. Right. Like, yep. We, we, you have what you need. I don't know how to do your job. I just know that we need this to be secure as a company. Only way I bowl is with the bumpers on. So exactly. That's, that's, that's how I prefer it. Yep. Well, Jerry, I, thought this was a super interesting conversation. One of my favorite things is taking something that a lot of people make sound sexy and you like turn it around and figure out, you know, what's the core of this. And I think that's part of the reason that we like to do these kind of podcasts here is to really break down, understand, you know, what are the mechanics of some of the things that are out there in the wild. So uh, anything you wanted to close with today before uh, we sign off? No, I mean, I'm a zero trust fan. I really like the NIST standards. And, you know, we're a zero trust company at Kenna. And and we try really hard to to follow this and to eat and to to kind of eat the dog food of the NIST standards. It's it's hard and there's always improvements and there's always stuff you can tweak. And it's not perfect, but it's better than the castle mentality. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Jerry. You know, we look forward to having you on again soon. So appreciate your time today. 